Take your Bibles and turn with me once again to John chapter 4, verses 21 through 26. I think this will be our last time to talk about the specifics of worship out of this today. And I only say I think it will be. It may or may not be. We'll find out between now and next week. But uh, I do want to talk about worship one more time, uh, true worship, uh, out of these words of our Lord and some other parallel passages to help us get hopefully a clearer and more complete understanding. Worship is so important. It's such, it's such the integral thing that we do as believers that we want to get the greatest grasp and the greatest understanding of it that we possibly can. To, to miss what it means to worship, it, true worship, the type of worshipers that Jesus says here that the Father is seeking after, true worshipers, those who, those who just focus on nothing else except Him. It's such an important, vital part of what we do and who we are as believers that we cannot really talk about it too much, I don't think. Hear the words of Jesus once again as he talks to this woman at the well in Samaria. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. And we know the genealogy of that that goes from Jesus all the way back in one genealogy to Adam. And another one all the way back to David, that, that it's all through the Jews that this salvation has come until it finally has manifested itself in the person of Jesus Christ. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit. And in truth, the woman said to him, I know Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I've arrived. The answer to all these questions, the answer to all these, this misunderstanding has now appeared. You hear what I say about worship and you'll understand what true worship is. You listen to me and see who I am and you will understand what true worship is all about. And, and so we've talked about that for the last weeks. We've talked about worshiping in spirit and truth. We've talked about worshiping the Father last week and the, the significance of Jesus saying, we worship, we will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Not denying the Trinitarian nature of it. Not denying that we worship the Father through the Son and by the Holy Spirit. That the entirety of the Trinity is wrapped up in our time of worship. We worship the Father, the Creator, the one who made all this, the one who purposed salvation, who sent his Son into the world, who said, No one can come to me, no one can come to the Father except by me. And so we worship the Father, the Creator, through the Son, through the sacrifice, through the cross, and we worship in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's his Spirit that energizes our worship. And, and so when we talk about worshiping in spirit, we're, we're talking about that inward being, that inward most part of our being that we worship Him, but that is empowered by the internal dwelling of the Holy Spirit, Christ dwelling among us, Christ 
dwelling in us. And so we see the fullness of the Trinity when we come together to worship Him every time we gather in this place. And if we worship Him aright, if we worship Him properly, we will always see that Trinitarian focus, that Trinitarian understanding that we worship Him in all of that. I think it's significant that Jesus brings about this discussion of worship with this woman right after his encounter with Nicodemus. He's talked to Nicodemus, the leader of the Jews, and he's told Nicodemus that if you want to know the Father, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, indeed, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. There must be a newness of life. There must be a change of nature. There must be something radical that happens in your life. That is the gospel message. We proclaim that Jesus Christ came into the world, and even as the song Yahweh that that the choir sang so vividly portrayed, Yahweh became a man, dwelt among us, lived and died and rose from the dead that we might know God, that we might have a relationship with Him. That's the gospel message. And so when we gather here, we gather and understand that we come in order to worship the Father through the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and the substance of that which we are worshiping in is the gospel. And so our worship and our time together is to be gospel-focused. It's to be gospel-centered. And and so many people today totally miss out on understanding what it means to be gospel-centered, what the gospel is. If you want to understand worship, you've got to understand the grounds of our worship. The, the footing of our worship, the foundation of our worship, and that is the gospel of Christ. And yet we also need to understand there, there are three elements of that. One is the element of salvation, uh, the, the element of redemption. We worship Him because we have been saved by Him. An unbeliever cannot worship. An unbeliever can sing the songs. An unbeliever can listen to the sermons. An unbeliever can go through all the motions. But if you've not been redeemed by the power of Jesus Christ, if you've not placed your faith and your trust in Him, then you may worship in in an outward way. You may say all the right things and sing all the right songs, but there's no internal worship there. Redemption is a part of the ground of our worship. I, I love it when God said throughout all of redemptive history, whether it was the Jews coming out of of Egypt or whether it was through David or whether it's in his son and in the new covenant through the book of Hebrews, God says, you will be my people and I will be your God. That that is a, a matter of redemption. I will save you out of the world. I will save you out of the, the distractions that take all attention off of me. I will give you redemption. I will give you salvation. And that will be the beginning of your worship. But, but it's not just the redemption, it's also the relationship that comes with that. We are told by Jesus when we come to Him and when we enter into that relationship with God through Him that now we are to address God not just as Almighty King, not just as Almighty God, but we are to address Him as Father. In that great model prayer that we've talked about often, He says, you come to Him and say, Our Father. And if you notice there, there's a plurality there. It's, it's not that, that we're in this individualistic time of worship. Even in our prayer time together, it's our Father. We who are your redeemed, we who are saved by you, we come to you as our Father. There is a relationship there. We talked last week about how worship is experiencing not only the, the covenant lordship of God, 
but it's experiencing the covenant presence of God. God among us. God dwelling in us. And, and in that relationship, we call him Father. Jesus is our elder brother. God is our Father. We have been adopted into that family, the family of God. And now we are his. He is our God. He is our, we are his people. But he is our Father. And we are his family by the virtue of his adoptive grace. And, and then there's the representation that comes through worship. <clears throat> One of the great things we know is... From the Old Testament, there had to be a representative for true worship to take place. Before the cross, before the Lamb of God died, there had to be a human, physical representative for worship to take place. So the people gathered, they brought their sacrifices, and the high priest went into the Holy of Holies and offered those sacrifices on behalf of the people. There was a representative that took place in their worship. But in Christ, we have the final high priest, the ultimate high priest. And the, the writer of Hebrews plays that up very big and says, we now have a high priest who intercedes on our behalf at all times in heavenly places. We don't have human earthly priest. I am not a priest. I, I want you to understand that. Sometimes you want to treat me like a priest. Sometimes you think you have to confess your sin to me in order for God to really forgive it and, and, and I can go somehow better before God and, and get that. But no, we believe as, as Christians in the understanding of the priesthood of all believers. All believers come before the Father and we have a great high priest who is heaven, in heaven interceding on our behalf, but we don't need a priest on earth to intercede for us. That doesn't mean they're not teachers, doesn't mean they're not pastors, doesn't mean they're not that those who have, have studied and prepared themselves to teach us, but it does mean that you don't need me to get to the Father. You don't need me to get forgiveness of sin. You don't need me to worship. You don't need Jeff up here to worship. If, if you're required on us to worship for you, then you're in an Old Testament mindset. You're not in a gospel mindset. And the one thing we want happening when we gather in this place every single Lord's Day when we come before Him is we want to come with a gospel mindset. I, I love what Paul said to the Galatians. Actually, he was talking to Peter. You, you know the little bit of uh, struggle that took place when Peter was there among the Gentiles and, and some Jews came down and they, they, they basically, Peter sort of withdrew from his Gentile friends, wouldn't eat with them anymore, wouldn't have anything to do with them. And, and he started talking to them about becoming Jews before they could be Christians almost. And Paul comes on the scene and he kind of rebukes him. He's telling the, the, the Galatians about that in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 14. He said, but when I, and I love this first statement, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas and all in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? That little double statement there that, Paul made to Cephas, to, to Peter. He said, listen, you, you can't expect people, if, if you can't even live up to your own standard that you set, you can't try to make others live up to that standard. You can't make that happen. And, and the point that Paul is making there to the, to the Galatian Christians is, listen, we must worship, we must come together constantly and continually in the gospel. And when we, when we gather for worship, we, we are to keep ourselves in the straightforwardness of the gospel, the truth of the gospel. 
our services, our, our, our songs, our prayers, our sermons, whatever they are, they are to be straightforward in the truth of the gospel. One translation translates that as Paul's saying to the, to the Galatians, listen, they were not living in line with the truth of the gospel. They were not living their lives in line with the truth of the gospel, which implies that if we're not very careful, if we're not very conscious about this, we can find ourselves, even though we are Christians, even though we are wanting to worship properly, we can find ourselves getting out of line with the gospel. We can find ourselves wandering off into either legalism or moralism or wandering off into antinomianism or, or, or relativism. We, we can find ourselves, if we're not careful, not staying straightforward in the truth of the gospel. When we worship, when we gather at Grace Baptist Church every Sunday, I, you know, we don't do a lot of things. Uh, we, don't, we don't do a lot of extra, uh, extraneous things. But one thing I hope we do is we keep our focus and our emphasis and our attention straightforward in the truth of the gospel. Paul, throughout his writings, talks about the significance of and the importance of the gospel. He he talks about the power of the gospel. If you remember me telling you, right under this pulpit, in the concrete, some of you may not know this, but buried in the concrete is a metal box. And in that metal box is a Bible that is open to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And and it's highlighted. Nobody will ever see it because it's buried in concrete. Unless some archaeologist 5,000 years from now is digging around and come across it. And I hope they do. I hope they find that box. I hope they get the screws out of it and they open it up. And they see there Paul's words highlighted in that Bible, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and then to the Gentile, to all who believe, to all, anywhere, everywhere who place their faith in Christ, anywhere, any language, any tribe, any tongue, any person who puts their faith in Christ, this gospel is the power of God for salvation. Wow. The gospel we love, the gospel we believe, the gospel we focus on through our singing, through our praying, and our focus centered on Christ is a powerful gospel. Paul said to the the Corinthian Christians that the gospel has life in it. He says, I gave you birth through the gospel. I preached the gospel to you, and you came to that new birth. And then after it has regenerated us, it is then the the instrument of continual growth and continual spiritual progress once we are converted, once we are saved. The gospel is not something that we start with and then we stop it and go on with something else. The gospel gives life. The gospel sustains life. Paul said in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 6, he said, All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. I love that statement to the Colossians. The gospel is all over the world bearing fruit and growing. The first thing we must understand about this gospel is it is a living thing. 
It's alive. It's alive because it's centered in the person of Jesus Christ, who, yes, died on the cross, but rose from the dead and is alive forevermore. The gospel, the gospel is not only living, but Paul says it is planted and it bears fruit and it grows. And the gospel is only planted in us that it might bear fruit. You are given the gospel so that your life may bear fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the character of Christ, that you might live as unto Him, and that people might see Christ in you. Be careful, dear friends. When you find yourself in political or moral or or, uh, cultural discussions where you disagree with somebody, where you see things a bit differently, it, it may be that it may be that you're right and they're wrong, or they may be right and you're wrong, or maybe some middle ground on some of those things. I don't know. But here's what I want you to be sure you understand, that if the gospel is alive in you, the gospel of Christ will shine through more than your own uh, discussion of the issue. Christ will be seen even as we talk about these things. It's alive and it's planted in you. You're given life that it might bear fruit and the implication might be deeply understood that God's grace in all truth, as Paul says there, will shine through your life. Thirdly, out of that passage in Colossians 1.6, we understand the gospel continues to grow and continues to renew us throughout our lives. Paul says, as it has done since you first heard it and continues to do even now. Gospel is not something you start in and then it's over because you you believed in Jesus. The gospel is something that carries you forward every day of your life. Which which comes to the second dimension of it. There's the power of the gospel that Paul speaks about in Romans 1.16. But then there's also the sufficiency of the gospel. We we never go beyond the gospel. Understand that. We, We never move on to something more advanced. We never say, well, I'm, I'm through with the ABCs now. Now I'm just ready to move on to something better. No, the gospel is not just the ABCs of the faith. The gospel is the A to Z of Christianity. It's the Alpha and the Omega. It's everything of Christianity. And that's why the gospel and being gospel-centered and Christ-centered is so important, so necessary for everything we do in this place. Everything we do. And, and we have to... We have to fight. We have to struggle to be sure that we don't get off the straightforward way of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, that, that we stay walking in line with the gospel together as a body and together as a people. Tertullian, the church father, made a statement in one of his writings. He said, just as Christ was crucified between two thieves, So this doctrine of justification, which is the gospel, so this doctrine of justification is ever crucified between two opposite eras. One is moralism or legalism. The other era that the gospel is sometimes crucified between is what we might call relativism or irreligion. You've got a religious thief on one side and you've got an irreligious thief on the other side. You've got one on one side saying... I don't want to follow Christ. I don't want to be obedient to God. I don't want to hear anything he says. Everything is relative. What I think is right is what I will believe is right, no matter what God says. And they don't don't understand. They, They want to say, well, you know, God is love. 
If you say God is love, then God is love. Doesn't matter what I do, doesn't matter how I live. That's the relativistic, irreligious thief on one side of Christ. But on the other side is one that's just as dangerous and just as much a thief, and that is moralism or legalism. That's the religious thief hanging by the gospel. And it says, listen, I I know the truth of God. I know what God's Word says. They forget the grace of God. They forget the love of God. The irreligious wants to cry out to the love of God and say, if God's love, then he'll take care of all this. I don't have to worry about it. The, 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 The legalist says, no, no, no. If we don't obey every single command and every single, if we're not a good person and doing everything just right. And the truth of the matter is, they miss the middle truth of the gospel. John, in his first chapter, talked about the appearance of Jesus. He said there are two things about him that he brought. He brought grace and he brought truth. He said the law was given through Moses. And the law was very legalistic, very religious. And the law was truth. Truth to the ultimate degree. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make in yourselves a graven image. You shall do all these things religiously and worshipfully. You shall also do all these things horizontally to one another. Don't steal. Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie. I mean, all those things are right. And through Moses came the law. But John says, but through our Lord Jesus Christ came grace and truth. Truth wasn't negated. Truth wasn't canceled out. Truth still reigns, but it's truth by the grace of Christ. It's truth by the grace of His gospel. And so we have to be very careful that we don't let the moralism steal steal the gospel, and we don't let the the, the irreligious or the rationalism or or the... Relativism, still the gospel either. They are, they are balanced in truth. Grace and truth are balanced in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the question is not how good a person are you. A lot of good persons, a lot of good people will never enter the kingdom of God. A lot of good people will, be, will miss the gospel because of their goodness. Do you realize that? I'm good enough. I'm, just, I'm doing the best I can. I'm trying to live by the golden rule and the silver rule and the bronze. Every rule I can come up with. I know there's no silver and bronze, but it just fits. I live by the golden rule. I live by the Ten Commandments. I try my best. I'm doing the best I can. I know I'm good enough. The moralist denies their own sin. The moralist denies the depth of their sin and the depth of the understanding of that sin. And and they say, God doesn't have to pay anything for my salvation. I'm paying it all. And it fails. The irreligious one says, well, I'm just depending totally on the grace of God. I'm not worried about what... Scripture says, not worry about what God says. I'm just believing that what I believe is truth is truth, and and it'll be all right in the end. But you see, both of them miss the gospel. The gospel is what Jesus said to Nicodemus. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him will have life. Now, that is the positive statement. If you believe in Him, you will have life. 
he didn't have to go on and say, but you, if you don't, you have death, but he makes that clear. He who doesn't believe in the Son does not have life. It, it's in the gospel. It's in the Son. It's in the truth. But in reality, whether it's the legalist or the relativist, whether it's the religious or the irreligious who miss the gospel and have the gospel stolen right out from them, the, the bottom line is both groups have one thing very much in common, and that is both groups are trying to find ways to avoid Jesus as Lord. Both groups are trying to avoid Jesus as Lord, demanding and claiming control of their lives and ruling in them as Lord. They want to do it their own way. I want to do it by being good. I want to do it by doing whatever I want to do, but just saying surely God's love will suffice. And, and all of these things, both of them are trying to get out from being what Paul calls himself a doulos, a slave of Jesus Christ. avoid that, then we can feel better in this life about ourselves. But Paul says, I am a doulos. I am a slave. I am one who is crying out for my master to rule and to reign supreme in my life. They both deny the control of Christ, the lordship of Christ. They, they both are based on a distorted view of God. One says God is love and, and, and I'll just depend on that. The other says, well, God is justice and God will look at me and say I'm good enough and so His justice will be good enough for me and it's not. His love will be good enough for me and it's not. There's a distorted view of God that doesn't see that God is a God of truth and mercy, truth and grace. And they meet in the gospel. They meet in the person of Christ. The gospel, truth, the gospel, reality is that on the cross, Jesus fulfilled the law of God out of love for us. He fulfilled the law of God for us. Who no matter how legalistic, no matter how moralistic, no matter how hard we try, we can never do. That's why we sing that anthem sometimes clothed in the righteousness of Christ alone. There's no righteousness of my own. That's why the great old hymn says, nothing to your cross I bring, simply to that cross I cling. We have nothing to bring to him, righteousness-wise. His grace brings us to the cross every time. If we become the legalist or if we become the rationalist, the relativist, if we become the religious or the irreligious without the gospel, they both deny sin. In their own way, they both deny sin that needs to be dealt with only by the blood of Christ. And consequently, consequently, there is no joy and there is no power of grace in their lives. The gospel brings us a whole new way of seeing God and understanding His grace and understanding His truth. And it brings the power to live it. We can't live it on our own. 
but it brings the power of Christ dwelling in us. So when Jesus says to this woman at Samaria, when he says, listen, you don't worship, you worship what you don't know. You're, you're trying to figure it out. You're trying to work it out. But I want you to know that the one who can bring you to true worship is now standing before you. I who speak to you am he. I am Messiah. I am the Christ. I am the one who is God incarnate, come from heaven to reveal the Father in his entirety. And it's in me. It's in me that you worship the Father. It's in me that you find life. It's in me that you find grace. It's in me that you find truth. And there is no other way. In my opening prayer this morning, I, I talked about we're here today not to celebrate independence. We're here to, to celebrate dependence. I think we Americans have gotten so caught up in this whole idea of independence of everything that we... We forget that we must have dependence on Him or there is no life, there is no salvation, there, there is no gospel. One of George Whitfield, the great early American evangelist back in the colonial days, went into a tavern one time on his journeys and he, he said above, above the, the, the bar there in that tavern was this banner or this wooden plaque that said, We serve no sovereign here course they were talking about king george they were talking about the crown in in england they weren't talking about necessarily god but but whitfield made the statement he said if that is our attitude then our nation will certainly fail we may not serve a human sovereign we might not might not have a human royalty but my friend we must bow the knee in worship before the sovereign of the universe. And that's where the gospel brings us. That's where being gospel-centered brings us as a people. It brings us to the cross of Christ. It brings us to see Him as the sovereign ruler of all creation, of all the universe. It brings us to bow before Him. Lord, we do serve, we do worship a sovereign here. And that sovereign loved us so much that he sent his only son into the world to die, to live a perfect life, to die in our place, to raise from the dead, to validate everything he said, to ascend to the right hand of the Father, to rule and to reign for ever, over every king on this earth, over every president, over every Supreme Court, over every Congress, he rules supreme. They may not acknowledge him. They may not see his glory. They may not see his power. They may not recognize that one day they must bow their knee to him, but the scripture says, that's what will happen. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. The problem is, on that day, it's not confessing for salvation. It's not confessing for redemption. 
It's just a confessing to say, we are lost, and we didn't see it. We didn't acknowledge it. That's why on this side of eternity, this side of His coming, we stay gospel-centered because to all who believe, He gives eternal life. And then our knee bows now. And we say now, you are the Lord, you are the God, you are the Creator, you are the Redeemer, you are the one of grace, and you are the one of truth. And we bow before you. Folks, that's what it means to be gospel-centered in our worship. That's what it means to be Christ-centered in our worship. That's what it means that we come into this place. As I said in my Grace Notes article this week, and as I, I made a statement yesterday online that some of you saw and responded to, we come here for one purpose and one purpose alone, and that is to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, to worship the Father, to worship by the power of His Holy Spirit. And by His grace and with His help, we will let nothing distract us from that. Nothing. On these walls, we only see one King, one Sovereign, one Savior. One who is worthy of our worship. Let's pray. Father, our worship is imperfect. Our worship lacks every time we come together. Because we are imperfect people. But Lord, we come before you to worship you by your strength. And Lord, we know that we worship a perfect Savior, a perfect God. Help us, Lord, to remain gospel-centered. Help us, Lord, remain Christ-centered. Help us never be distracted with anything else when we enter this sacred ground as your people and we call it worship let it be worship and worship of you Father I pray this morning that there may be men, women, young people in this place that do not know you I pray Lord your Holy Spirit will open their eyes and their heart to see their need and see you as the Savior Lord, that they would respond to you as Savior and Lord. Father, I pray that they would come to you by faith, believing in you, and trusting in you, Lord, to give them of your righteousness. Because they, like us, they, like me, have no righteousness of our own. Father, do your work in your way, for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name.